Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden calling out big oil today as ExxonMobil, Chevron and Shell enjoy record profits while consumers are getting gouged at the pump thanks to actions by Putin and Mohammed bin Salman to drive up the global price of oil ahead of the elections, which is creating a windfall for the oil companies. Joining us is Nico Luciani, the director of the Corporate Power Program at the Roosevelt Institute, where he leads the program's efforts to dissect and dismantle the ways in which extractive corporate behavior jeopardizes workers, consumers, our natural environment and our shared economic system. We'll discuss whether, as Europe goes cold turkey on oil and gas this winter, the rest of us can find a way to shake the addiction that is killing our planet. Then, in response to a tweet by Hillary Clinton tying Trump and the Republicans' demonization of Nancy Pelosi to the attack on her husband, the new owner of Twitter, Elon Musk, posted a conspiracy theory that Hillary is already dead and a body-double imposter has taken her place, leaving us to wonder what kind of toxic effluence is about to flow from the influential social media platform now controlled by a Trump-like troll with an ego inflated by billions. Joining us is Douglas Rushkoff, named one of the world's ten most influential intellectuals by MIT. He is the award-winning author, broadcaster and documentarian who studies human autonomy in the digital age. The host of the popular Team Human podcast, he has written 20 books, including the bestsellers Present Shock and Program or Be Programmed, and made the PBS Frontline documentaries Generation Like and Merchants of Cool. He is a research fellow of the Institute for the Future and founder of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at the City University of New York, where he is a professor of media theory and digital economics. His latest book is Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. Then finally, with Lula gaining a narrow victory in the Brazilian elections of 50.9% to 49.1% for Bolsonaro, who was yet to concede, we'll go to Sao Paulo, Brazil, and speak with James Green, the Carlos Manuel de Cispedes Professor of Modern Latin American History and Portuguese and Brazilian Studies at Brown University, and the author or co-editor of 11 books on Brazil and Latin America. The past president of the Brazilian Studies Association, he has traveled extensively throughout Latin America and lived eight years in Brazil, and we will discuss the challenges facing Lula in wanting to unite a divided country with an opposition led by a Trump-like demagogue who spews hatred, lies, and threatens violence. And joining us now is Nico Luciani, who is the director of the Corporate Power Program at the Roosevelt Institute, where he leads the program's efforts to dissect and dismantle the ways in which extractive corporate behavior jeopardizes workers, consumers, our natural environment, and our shared economic system. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nico Luciani. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, today, President Biden made a brief announcement basically accusing the big oil companies of war profiteering. It was pretty unusual, uh, frankly. And I haven't seen too many politicians taking on big oil in such a blunt manner. How did it strike you? Well, it struck me as the right tone to remind the American people and more, more generally, you know, the world's population that these companies' extraordinary profits are coming out of uh, geopolitical tensions that since 
uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, the prices and the oil profits have soared. And unfortunately, the companies have not yet given back in a way that's commensurate with uh, with their profits. And Exxon, in its third quarter, made $19.7 billion, and Shell reported a $9.5 billion. I believe Chevron was something like 11.7 or something. So they're all making out. But there is an alliance out there, clearly, between Mohammed bin Salman and Vladimir Putin, and they've connived to cut production of oil to drive up the price ahead of the midterm elections. It's pretty... There's no secret that both Mohammed bin Salman and Vladimir Putin want Trump to come back. So how much is this is is this to do with the elections? I mean, clearly Biden is releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in order to drive down the price of oil. But today he made it clear that the oil companies are not helping the American consumer. That's right. I mean, to your point, Exxon made essentially $20 billion last quarter. That's something around the lines of 14 to $15 million per hour. Uh, Exxon alone, you know, in 2022 is estimated to make more than Amazon, Procter & Gamble, and Tesla combined. Uh, and again, they're really taking advantage of the geopolitical tensions uh, that you mentioned. Um, and profits are one thing. You know, I think uh, that there's a strong argument that uh, we shouldn't allow endless profits. There should be some kind of cap and, and uh, tax of, of a certain amount of excess profits. But what's more, con- even more concerning, Ian, is not the amount of profits, but how they're being used. If those profits were uh, spun back into the company in capital expenditures to increase workers' uh, wages or, <clears throat> lo and believe, uh, invest in renewables, maybe the, the conversation would be different. But most of these profits are going back into shareholder payouts. Exxon CEO said, you know, there's been a lot of discussion, I'm paraphrasing, there's been a lot of discussion about returning some of our profits directly to the American people. He said, that's exactly what we're doing in the form of a quarterly dividend. And I've talked to a lot of these companies at the C-suite level and their social responsibility, their feeling of giving back to the world uh, is making a lot of money so they can cut dividend checks to their shareholders. And it's good to just to remember who the shareholders are. It's not everyone. In fact, the bottom 60% of, of income earners in the United States only own 6% of stock, right? It's, it's the top 10% that owns almost 90% of stock. So the, the payouts are really going to exacerbate economic inequality. It's not a, a profits giving back to the American people. Instead, there's another way to give profits back, directly back to the American people, and that's by creating, as I mentioned before, an excess profits tax over a certain amount, that money would be given back to the American people in different ways. And it would it would disincentivize companies from constantly searching in the short term for endless profits and, and maybe putting that money back into more social or economic use. Well, President Biden today did mention that these big oil companies will be basically buying back stock to drive up their compensation of the of the CEOs. And that's pretty much what corporate America's been doing lately. I mean, that seems to be, they're not investing in R&D. I guess it's to do with what you're dealing with, right, in, in terms of your corporate power program. It's extractive corporate behavior. Exactly. And I think this is one of the starkest illustrations, not the only, by any means, but it's one of the starkest illustrations of, of, of an economy that's 
run by uh, very large corporations who are themselves run by uh, an ideology of uh, maximizing shareholder value uh, up and above everything else. There's that famous saying, don't listen to what people are saying, but how they spend their money or look at their budget over over their principle, uh, over their words that your values are really written down in your budgets. And these companies, um, you know, are, to your point, are spending everything they can and more uh, on shareholders. So really the root cause here is that ideology of shareholder primacy. And uh, I think it's in the past in the U.S. we haven't had such a a business model of short-term quarterly capitalism. Um, we've had a longer-term vision in the past, which uh, would uh, actually put forward public value before uh, shareholder value. And I think we need to start moving back to that for the 21st century. So given that Putin has started this war on Ukraine and has driven up the price of oil globally and along with conniving with MBS, to cut production in order to drive up the price even further. Europe is going to have a very cold winter. So I guess my question is that if the Europeans are going to go cold turkey on oil and gas, why can't the rest of us find a way to shake this addiction that's killing our planet? Yeah, I wish we could move as quickly as humanly possible. I think the Inflation Reduction Act is going to help move us that way. Uh, I think uh, people are starting to realize that our addiction of fossil fuels is killing a planet, but also it's a very volatile in terms of prices. And so inflation um, is driven largely today by uh, food, fuel and housing. And the fuel is, is principally, you know, the use of natural gas and oil. And so the more we can transition away from uh, fossil fuels and into more true renewables, um, the more we can bring down costs on everything, right? Because oil is not just another product, they're inputs to produce everything else. And so we can really uh, drive down prices for everything if we can get away from this uh, uh, this fossil fuel addiction uh, while helping the planet. I think, as I mentioned, the Inflation Reduction Act gets us part of that way. I do think properly taxing the excess profits of oil companies and banning uh, stock buybacks of all companies over a certain size, but certainly the oil companies in particular, will present opportunities uh, for other energy companies, solar companies, wind companies, you know, um, renewable energy companies to, to crowd in to take some of that investment. So that's, that's where we're at. And I think the White House is getting, it seems, to a position where they've just had enough, you know, uh, and it's time to start thinking back towards the World War II era excess profits tax ideas, something we've been championing for, for some time here at the Roosevelt Institute. Well, Nico Luciani, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. Take care. Take care. And again, I've been speaking with Nico Luciani, who's the director of the Corporate Power Program at the Roosevelt Institute, where he leads the program's efforts to dissect and dismantle the ways in which extractive corporate behavior jeopardizes workers, consumers, our natural environment, and our shared economic system. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into Elon Musk's latest tweet, which leaves us to wonder what kind of toxic influence is about to flow from the influential social media platform. Get from out the road when he get dull, it's horrible. 
Time is money, spend, wait, save, invest, or fest. The 10K Sakeva chicken chest S. Yes, y'all, a double get your trickles. The best ball is pitching and rub to get a nickels. But tut tut, he bout to change the price again. They go up each time, he blow up like hydrogen. Villain here, have him shrilling in fear. It won't stop top bill until he a gazillionaire. Villain, his agenda is clear. Ending this year with dividends to spear. Here, a new meaning to sales through the roof. Guaranteed raw and source truth is truth. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Douglas Ruskoff, named one of the world's 10 most influential intellectuals by MIT. He is the award-winning author, broadcaster, and documentarian who studies human autonomy in the digital age, the host of the popular Team Human podcast. He has written 20 books, including the bestsellers, Present Shock and Program or Be Programmed. He's written regular columns for Medium, CNN, Daily Beast, and The Guardian and made the PBS Frontline documentaries Generation Like and Merchants of Cool. And he's a research fellow of the Institute for the Future and the founder of the Laboratory of Digital Humanism at the City University of New York, where he is a professor of media theory and digital economics. And his latest book is Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. Welcome to Background Briefing, Douglas Rushkoff. Hey, it's good to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Douglas. And in about a week from now, we may well wake up and find that the Republicans have taken the House and the Senate. And in part, you'd have to attribute their victory to these small group of reactionary right-wing techno-capitalists like Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, Reid Hoffman, Mark Zuckerberg, David Sachs, and Larry Ellison. So... Since you profiled these people, particularly with their escape fantasies, wanting, and I notice every time you see Elon Musk on TV, he's wearing a, a, a T-shirt that says Occupy Mars. So what is it about these people? Why do they support Trump and the Republicans? Why are they turning over their incredibly influential platforms to spread political poison and hatred and division? And what is their end game? Well, it's you know it's different for different people. There's a, a kind of a wide spectrum, I guess. You know what they have in common is a, uh, in some ways, is a programmer's understanding of of society or civilization. That you know the human beings uh, are an engineering problem. You know, which is. Uh, uh, you know, necessarily elitist, and so and and necessarily anti-democratic, which I guess is the main thing they have in common. That people are sort of stupid and can't be trusted with their own fate. And there's lots of different ways to compensate then or correct for human error. You know, one is programming them through their devices. You know, and I don't mean it in some weird conspiratorial way, but just the real way they use behavioral 
finance and and uh, um, captology and whatever the latest and greatest uh, modes of of algorithmic persuasion are to uh, pull people away from their uh, grounding and their sense of uh, of of solidity and and uh, psychic wholeness and make them feel um, destabilized and unbalanced and scared and paranoid and they're they're more easily manipulated. But the 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 I guess the, the common belief and end game is 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 accelerationism that they all agree even though some of them uh, have sort of neo-fascist understandings from from Ebola some of them like Peter Thiel believe more in a techno monarchy that someone like he or Elon would run um, some of them just want to you know bring on the end um, the the thing they have in common is what we would call accelerationism. And that's this, it, it kind of comes from, from libertarianism in some, in some parts. It's just rip the Band-Aid off. Whatever it is that we know, you know, that we might individually want after this, we know that the current civilizational operating system is flawed, and we just have to end it by any means necessary to get to the next thing. You know, and that's the slightly religious understanding they have, not in the good sense of religion, but in there's an omega point, you know, in the future that we have to just reach this this moment, this singularity, this moment of self-sovereignty. And the sooner we get there, the better. So let's just do whatever is necessary. And if it means a whole bunch of people now have to suffer and die, that's kind of okay as long as we get there. But why do they portray particularly the state of California as this dystopia full of homeless people and yet they all live here and they've made their fortunes here. I find it so paradoxical that you've got Elon Musk basically playing footsie with Putin and being absolutely used as a, a useful idiot by him. Uh, you've got J.D. Vance who Peter Thiel is trying to buy a Senate seat for also supporting Putin. So how can they be supporting this murderous dictator who's just literally murdering a country before our eyes at the same time talk about this crime-ridden dystopia here in the United States. I mean, who's the world's biggest criminal, for God's sake? Putin. Well, I think they look at it a little differently. I mean, <laughs> clearly, uh, from, from their perspective, they've got their nice, clean corporate headquarters, say, at Facebook, yet there's all these poor people in encampments Homeless people living all around, you know, there's tents at the, on the fringes of the campuses of these places. And um, so, uh, of course, they're thinking that the world is, is, is going to hell in a handbasket. And they're just hoping, this is what I write about in my book, they're hoping they can make enough money fast enough to insulate themselves from the damage they're creating by earning money in that way. You know, so any of these places, you know, Uber and, and Facebook and even Stanford's campus, they're all in, uh, uh, they're like fortresses in the middle of tent villages at this point. So uh, they, they do have that, that view. The reason they like uh, Putin is not because they like Putin himself, but when they do their long-term scenario planning and they say, okay, by 2050, there'll be no arable topsoil in the United States. That means America is going to have to um, colonize Canada in one way 
or the other. We're going to have to make them an offer they can't refuse. And if someone like Putin can walk into Ukraine for the breadbasket and take it for Russia, then it, it sets up a precedent that makes it more easy for, you know, uh, uh, for America, whatever America might look like, or the United States to go take what it needs from somewhere else. So they're looking at it more like a poker game where there's four or five big players at the table and you've got to accept the the massive authority of each one of them. So you got, you know, a Chinese dictator who's pretty much announced that he's there for life. You've got Putin taking what he wants and they want a, a someone, if not Trump, they want an authoritarian in a position of power in the United States who can just do what needs to be done um, in this cold, hard world, which is uh, not um, uh, not going to work, in their opinion, as a democracy, because, look, people are crazy. Well, Peter Thiel has made it clear that he doesn't believe in democracy. But is there any models that they believe in? Do they want to have a kind of corporate governance? Do they, do they see Singapore or the Emirates as a model? I mean, the idea that you want Donald Trump to come back, which is what they're certainly working on, and they're all one way or another supporters of Trump. I mean, <laughs> what good is that guy going to do? He, he, he's well, been the wrecking crew, and he's not going to solve the homeless problem, that's for sure. No, I think they look at Trump as a means to an end, as a, uh, I think they're using him, or, or think they are, that it's, it's a way to tear this thing down. You know, and, and Trump is certainly, uh, Trump and Trumpists, who, um, uh, who can so doubt and, and discontent about today's institutions are the, the, the fastest means to dismantling the current state. You know, they see the state as a, a, a corrupt um, system. You know, they think that, that it's like a, a, to them, it would be like a, you know, a child who, who wore braces and then was never allowed to take the braces off their teeth. They look at the government that way. We've just got to, we've got to end it. You know, and they're also, they're convinced, and Thiel has spoken about this in one way or another, and certainly the people I know who spend time with Thiel um, say that he talks about this all the time. They're very afraid of China. They think that um, Hillary and Bill Clinton and uh, uh, Bill Gates and Google and left-wing uh, politicians and, and Biden um, are all part of a sort of conspiracy to sell America's data to the Chinese um, as, as part of a kind of a, a collaborative technology development. And because the, the left and China, that's the way they see kind of uh, the way they see things. And they believe that, you know, this is, this is racially um, suspect, and that America should instead be siding with Russia against China, you know, and, and, and form a, a, you know, a, a white male, um, uh, uh, some sort of white male solidarity of the, of the original top-down Western hegemony. Um, so they're looking at it, uh, this schema, in, in, a, in a bizarre and, and somewhat paranoid way, because um, of course China has its problems, but I don't think that um, the Clintons and Google are, you know, selling Americans' data to, uh, you know, to China in advance of their new uh, one-world government. 
Right, but TikTok, which is a Chinese company, uh, which is incredibly popular, they're certainly capable of doing that. But, I mean, you've got Elon Musk, who totally depends on China, doesn't he, for Tesla? I mean, doesn't that mean that China has leverage over Elon Musk? It's It's the opposite of Peter Thiel's vision. I know, and they're and and Musk and Thiel are kind of uh, on again, off again partners, and you know they they develop PayPal together. I mean, you also look at, I mean, remember that moment. Now I'm really uh, giving away my age. When um, who was it? Ashcroft was trying to develop a um, surveillance system for the U.S. government, and they were in somebody's hospital room trying to yes, get them was, to sign. It, it was. Uh... Bush's attorney general and his chief of staff had visited Ashcroft's hospital room. He'd signed over his duties as attorney general for an operation to, of all people, Bob Mueller. And Mueller was so outraged that the uh, Bush White House were trying to have him sign off on an extension of a warrantless wiretapping regime which to this day we still don't know the details of. Right. And uh, Comey, the head of the FBI, also showed up. And basically Bush was told that if he goes ahead and signs this, if he goes ahead with this plan, this surveillance plan, that the entire top echelons of of the FBI and the DOJ would resign en masse. And that was actually the moment when Bush found out that that Dick Cheney was running the government, not him. <laughs> exactly. And what they did instead, though, was Peter Thiel went and said, fine, I'm going to do it through the private sector instead and develop Palantir. You know, so now you have, you know, the private sector has more information on you and everybody than than any government. And that's because they see the private sector as a better as a better way to run um, society. So, you know, Thiel's model is for this sort of CEO monarch to run things. And uh, so they each have these uh, ideas. And because, you know, they started as kids, they had dreams of becoming emperors of a sort. They became billionaires off a certain approach to technology. And now they think that they know better about how to run, how to run the world. And even if what I would say, and what I try to tell them when I see them is even if you believe this is true, you know, your theory of change is suspect. You know, that's where if you've got to be um, this this uh, emotionally and physically violent in order for the thing you want to have happen to happen, then maybe you want to reconsider how we how we get there. You know, to which their argument is, well, you know, your regime, you know, whatever we want to your Biden regime is violent as well. Look at the increase in violence, you know, since Biden took office compared to Trump and the number of wars and this and they'll bring out their data. And um, it, it, it's very it becomes very hard to argue um, uh, to argue with them. The only thing I can argue is that, you know, when we try to take these actions at scale, um, we it it ends up leading to quite brittle solutions. You know, that that my theory of change is much more local and gradual and slow and is a theory of change that um, centers the most vulnerable people in any transition to think, well, what do we do about them? So now it's, you know, what do we do about the people who are up to their waist in water in Pakistan? You know, what do we do about about the global poor? And I think they look at, well, that's the, their situations are untenable and we have to move on 
um, you know, for the for the good of the future. And a lot of these guys don't even believe that the eight billion people alive today matter. You know, there's a a new meme out there called long termism. And it sounds like they mean, you know, what's our co best collective long-term future together? But no, it's actually a kind of a bastardization of, of Jeremy Bentham's utilitarianism uh, calculated with digital algorithms. And they believe that there is a future in which there will be, you know, trillions of bots or post-humans spread throughout the universe, these conscious beings. And that because there's so many trillions of them, their happiness is more important than the, the happiness of the mere 8 billion who might be around today. That the 8 billion humans, this, these, these old school humans, we're like the, the larvae, you know, and there's very few of us compared to how many happy, you know, uh, uh, future post-humans there will be throughout the universe. So it's okay to sacrifice the experiences and the lives of this, this you know, paltry little puddle of humans for... Um, you know, the, the great reward at the end. Well, if, if Zuckerberg has his way, the younger generation will be grow up with helmets on their head inhabiting the, the metaverse, which will be his creation. Well, uh, he's hoping for them to be let, let more like, uh, you know, glasses or contact lenses at some point, or maybe they just something gets lasered onto your, onto your <laughs> retina. Right, um, you know, but you're not I living think... in the real world. You're living in his yeah, world. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't truly mean harm. I mean, he does. It is true. He models himself after Augustus Caesar. You know, that's the, the his emperor of choice. And he cut his hair like him and has various, you know, statues and relics. And that's how he models himself. And on the one hand, I think we should be thankful that, you know, he's modeling himself after Augustus Caesar rather than Caligula. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's better. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, he still sees it as being an emperor. Um and that's just not a that's not a healthy um, <laughs> it's not a healthy worldview, right? But just in the last couple of minutes, though, Douglas Rushkoff, what's really happening is that these tech billionaires uh, who are supporting Trump, and in the case of Teal trying to buy two Senate seats, they're participating in the further division of this country. Now, from Putin's point of view. It couldn't be better. I mean, Trump's the gift that keeps on giving. His strategy is to turn Americans against each other and have us fight each other. And boy, we are on the cusp, according mm -hmm. to a bulletin on Friday, the very day that Nancy Pelosi's husband is beaten up with a, by an intruder looking for Nancy to presumably do what they tried to do on January the 6th, which is assassinate her or imprison her. On that very day, the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI put out a bulletin saying that we are in danger of, in effect, a civil war over disputes over elections. Well, who's, who is the main proponent of this whole lie that the last election was stolen? None other than the, the hero of these people, Donald Trump. So he's the instrument of division. They're the means by which this toxic hatred is stirred up in our body politic to the point where we could have civil war. I mean, is that what they want? Um, if, if necessary, um, I don't think they would, they would object to it. I mean, it's, it's their theory of change. So if you look, and I think they're, they're online now, but I mean, if you look at the instructions to, uh, you know, the, uh, alt-right activists, what they're supposed to do is, sh I mean, I shouldn't even be talking about it. They're, they're, 
there's specific things they're supposed to be doing to disrupt election sites, you know, to disrupt the polls, you know, accusing people of things, just create as much chaos as possible in order to to foment um, not just a right wing violence, but left wing violence to somehow provoke, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter or something to come out and start rioting. And then that gives the right wing uh, legislatures and governors the the opportunity to say, oh, look, the polls are too violent. We need to shut them down. And of course, the backup plan, which is now legal in all these places, is to then let the legislature do the vote rather than the votes. So uh, that's, you know, that's the plan. And then when that happens and people are put in office without a proper democratic process, then I wonder what do what are the people who don't like that do? You know, so um there, there is the hope that along with the, the collapse of the democratic process of a normal voting day um, comes a new excuse to um, put other kinds of measures into effect. I mean, I'm hoping it doesn't come to that and that there's ways of somehow processing and metabolizing the various planned disruptions of polling places. And that, you know, enough, well, enough left-wing activists realize and are, are understand that they're being goaded into something with a, with a very dangerous end game, you know, and how to sort of to be skillful in, in, in how we play this out. Sure, not, but not yeah, to take the bait. Exactly, not to take the bait. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I'm not, um, you know, election day is not a day that I want to be hanging around poll sites, you know, and that, and that uh, just that, even that idea is uh, just that I would even have the thought of, oh, well, on election day, I better just vote and get inside. I mean, it should be the opposite, right? Sure. <laughs> I should be well, trying then, to be outside yeah. and, and uh, trying to make the day as peaceful as possible. Well, that to that extent, then Trump has already won, right? Right. It's, this is a really shocking what's happening to this country. I thank you for joining us, uh, Douglas Rushko. Thank you. And, and God be with you. <laughs> okay thank you for your little religious invocation uh, Douglas <laughs> Rushkoff and again I've been speaking with Douglas Rushkoff who is named one of the world's top 10 most influential intellectuals by MIT he's an award winning author broadcaster and documentarian who studies human autonomy in the digital age the host of the popular team human podcast He has written 20 books including the bestsellers present shock and program or be programmed written regular columns for Medium, CNN, The Daily Beast, and The Guardian, and made the PBS Frontline documentaries Generation Like and Merchants of Cool. And he's a research fellow at the Institute for the Future and the founder of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at the City University of New York, where he's a professor of media theory and digital economics. And his latest book is Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into Lula's narrow victory in Brazil over Bolsonaro, who has yet to concede.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Brazil is James Green, the Carlos Manuel de Suspides Professor of Modern Latin American History and Portuguese and Brazilian Studies at Brown University, and the author or co-editor of 11 books on Brazil and Latin America, the past president of the Brazilian Studies Association. He's traveled extensively throughout Latin America and lived eight years in Brazil and joins us from Sao Paulo. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Green. Glad to be here. So you're in the middle of it all there in Sao Paulo, and it's 3 p.m. local time in Brazil, and Mm -hmm. uh, Bolsonaro is yet to concede, right? He is yet to concede. He went to the presidential palace uh, and has not been seen and not made a comment so far. Pretty unprecedented. And his three sons, who are pretty vocal on social media, they're also silent? They haven't made a comment either. Um, no one really understands what's going on, if they're plotting a strategy of retreat or of the offensive. It's hard to say. And the results are pretty narrow, right? Lula won by 50.9 points to 49.1 points by um, Bolsonaro. So... Correct. Uh, the one the, the difference is one point eight uh, percentage, two right. million votes. And this is out of one hundred and eighteen million Brazilians who voted, and this is the narrowest presidential election victory in thirty four years of Brazil's uh, modern democracy. So, on the surface, that would suggest uh, James that he's going to have a hard time, Lula, governing. He's already tried to reach out to the Brazilian people, saying, I will govern for 215 million Brazilians, not just for those who voted for me. There are not two Brazils. We are one country, one people, one great nation. How do you think that uh, resounds? Well, it's true that it is one great nation, but it is a people divided. And I think his gestures and say that we're not divided is a way to really reach out to the opposition and try to build bridges. But the election results, so the country... Uh, pretty uh, split down the middle, much like the United States between the Democrats and the Republicans. And um, unfortunately, like in the United States where the Republicans were captured by the far right in Trumpism, um, there's a large block of the America, of the Brazilian uh, population that has been infected by the Bolsonaro virus, much worse than COVID-19, and uh, a pretty adamant in their belief um in Bolsonaro and his ideas, and very much against Lula. That being said, Lula is a very talented politician, trade union leader who knew how to negotiate with multinational corporations, politician who knew how to build alliances. He built a very broad coalition to win the election. And he's now reaching out to even more politicians to see if he can have a working majority both in the Senate and in the House. So given the, the polarization, which you've pointed out, is similar to what we have here in the United States, and I take it what the countries have in common is that the polarization, I don't know how deep it existed prior to Bolsonaro, but he certainly exacerbates it. And in the United States, of course, Donald Trump is the main agent of division, and he has not gone away, and he has not conceded. And the concern, of course, is that... Uh, Bolsonaro will follow Trump's lead here. I mean, they they seem to be pretty close, these two leaders, right, Trump and Bolsonaro? They are close. Uh, 
one of the few international leaders with whom uh, Bolsonaro had an affinity was Trump. Um, Putin, Orban of Hungary are the kind of the three countries in which he, or presidents in which he had um, interactions and connections and visits, etc. Um, that being said, I think the fact that Bolsonaro has been silent is an indication of the fact that he's on the defensive. And his, the Speaker of the House, who was a political ally of his, has already said we need to move forward. People are already vying for political power, making deals. And I think uh, the timing, Bolsonaro is losing time in consolidating. He will maintain very strong support among 30 to 40 percent of the population in the foreseeable future. And this is a coalition of evangelical Christians who are very mobilized and very politicized, uh, conservative Catholics, and many people who dislike the Workers' Party because of alleged corruption that took place during their administrations. So Carla Zambelli, who's a far-right congresswoman, apparently a very vocal and prominent one, she's tweeted out that basically in a de facto way she's supporting him, saying, and I promise you, I will be the toughest opposition Lula has ever imagined. And she started out by saying the dream of freedom of more than 51 million Brazilians lives on. The day before the election, she made headlines because she pulled a gun on a Lula supporter, and that was all seen on video, and of course she wasn't charged. So it sounds a little bit like the Wild West there in Brazil. You're there. This is is a tremendous concern of people here. First of all, uh, under the Bolsonaro government, they liberalized uh, possession of arms and basically allowed people to have collectors, uh, people who were involved in shooting, and uh, ha- had the right to have uh, guns if they were registered. This actually was a, uh, a way in which people could register, get guns, and then sell them on the black market to organize crime. And so there's a huge number of arms circulating. Now, the electoral code prohibits anyone to have a firearm the day of the election. So uh, the congresswoman did violate the law. She uh, was unprovoked in terms of any physical danger to her. She claimed that she she was pushed and fell, but the video shows that was not the case. She tripped on her own. Uh, And she actually pursued a journalist who was Afro-Brazilian. And one could not help but imagine the reasons behind that being symbolically a supporter of the Lula government with whom she had had an altercation, a verbal altercation, um, but also the idea that a white woman or a white person in general has the right to pursue uh, a black person and shoot them if necessary. And this goes on all the time in Brazil with impunity when the police uh, go into poor communities and shoot to kill without really knowing exactly who the target is. Uh, it was a very, very ugly scene. Um, she is being charged with uh, racism and violating the law, and we'll see what happens on that account. And this followed the week before with another very important supporter of Bolsonaro who had been uh, placed under arrest, um, and the federal police went to arrest him, and he resisted by uh, shooting 50 shots to the federal police, and also throwing two hand grenades at them. And by the way, hand grenades are totally illegal in Brazil. So he was possessing uh, uh, an illegal substance, a legal object. Uh, it, he was finally arrested, and it caused a big scandal, and it really 
weakened Bolsonaro, uh, I think, among undecided voters. But by that time, the the electorate had really divided in one side or the other with very, very few people um, on the fence. So how significant is the truckers' strike? I mean, the Mato Grosso, which is the farming region in the heartland, they're setting trucks on fire, blocking roads. They're also blocking roads to the nation's largest oil refineries. Why is it that the truckers support him? What's so the truckers supported Bolsonaro in the past when, and demanded that they that he uh, lower uh, diesel prices, and he did that. Uh, he gave a huge concession to uh, the truckers, who tend to be independent contractors, independent truckers, um, with a kind of hyper-masculinity or toxic masculinity, uh, which identifies tremendously with Bolsonaro, has the same kind of tone and performance of gender and and, and roughness and rudeness. Um, and they tend to be conservative and vote uh, to the right. I think this strike, and it's, on, it's going on right now, so it's really hard to fully know what will happen, but I predict that it will actually backfire. Um, there's enough inflation and food prices are high enough as it is that the strike will probably increase prices and that will be left solely to be blamed by, uh, on Bolsonaro. Um, I don't think it'll be a successful effort to try to do anything about the elections. And clearly Bolsonaro does not have the support of the armed forces. The international community has recognized Lula. The United States has sent a very clear message that it will not support any coup attempt. I think Bolsonaro in this regard is very isolated. And I'm assuming they're spending time figuring out an exit strategy, whether that's leaving the country and migrating somewhere else or some kind of not recognition of the results, but not necessarily mobilizing his supporters into the streets. So there seem to be a lot of other similarities between the far right, how Trump has captured the Republican Party in this country and how Bolsonaro has, has essentially captured the far right or even the right, and the extent to which the evangelicals support Bolsonaro. They also support Trump uh, in this country. They believe in conspiracy theories, uh, just as the right does here. And, of course, we just had an example of a far-right QAnon stop-the-steal believer attacking the husband of uh, Nancy Pelosi, who's the you know, third in the terms of the head of state in this country. So it's a little uncanny, isn't it, the comparisons? Well, you know, many historians over the years have always wanted to draw lots of comparisons between the two countries, both are continent size, huge resources, a history of... Uh, uh, genocide towards the indigenous population, using enslaved Africans to build the wealth of the countries. Um, many, many similarities among them. And I think what happened in recent years is the far right has gained momentum internationally. Uh, there have been really ties built between people and organizations in different countries. And so Steve Bannon has been very close to the children of Bolsonaro, the sons of Bolsonaro, Eduardo Bolsonaro was in Washington, D.C. on January 5th um, and met with Ivanka Trunk, Trump. So the, the sons of Bolsonaro and the children of, of Trump have personal connections and friendships. And there are also clearly 
organizational ties. Um, Steve Bannon announced that this was the most important election in the Western Hemisphere or in, in the West and already announced when the first results were coming in uh, that there was voter fraud. Bolsonaro is not a very talented politician. He's a good, orator, he's a good uh, mobilizer of hate. And uh, I think he did a lot of copying of, of, of Donald Trump's playbook. And so many things that Donald Trump did Bolsonaro also tried to implement here, but not as successfully, I would say. So how is Lula going to govern then? Biden has managed to govern in this country with an incredibly thin majority, and we'll see what happens in about a week from now, whether that will go away. And if it does, if the Republicans win the House and the Senate, many analysts over here argue that, you know, we're heading into a kind of American version of fascism, you know, in terms of all of the almost 300 election deniers running for office in this election, that we could end up with a situation where the <laughs> your vote will be meaningless by 2024 and we'll have a one-party state. And, of course, the Republicans do model their agenda, which appears to be they'd rather cheat than compete, on the Orban, the Hungarian Right. So, so that's the, the case with, with Bolsonaro as well. He has followed the Orban play, uh, playbook. He's following what Trump is doing, what the Republicans are doing. Why, why is it somewhat different? Lula is an incredibly experienced politician. He built a very broad coalition. He, he actually, the bloc that he that helped support him in the election actually has a plurality in both the House and the Senate. And they need to attract the center-right parties that were split and some members supported Bolsonaro, some members were neutral, and some members supported Lula. Brazilian, there are 32 political parties in Brazil and over 28 are in the Congress, although several of those political parties only have one or two representatives. Um, But Lula has the skills as a former trade union leader negotiating with multinational corporations uh, in, the, in the automobile sector, and his experience in building a political party from scratch, which is probably the largest left political party in Latin America, and also governing for eight years. And so he will be very good, I believe, in attracting the center rights, not necessarily to his government, but to be able to work with them on specific legislative agendas, including the budget, including resources and programs. And many of them, I think one of the things that has happened in the last four years is that the economic elites of uh, of Brazil have understood that there needs to be serious response to social inequality. There needs to be government programs that address poverty, hunger, lack of resources for education, and good health care. And so it's in the interest of some of these right or center-right parties and politicians to support these measures that Lula intends to implement because they're going to benefit themselves in future elections. So I think it is theoretically possible that Lula will manage to build a broad, broad coalition beyond the one that elected him to be able to offset the hard right um, alliance of Bolsonaro and his supporters. We'll see, though. 
He's very talented. He's very good at doing that. And Brazilian politicians have a fame for being extremely opportunistic. And so it's likely that they will shift to the left, not necessarily ideologically, but in terms of what is happening in terms of government programs, because it's in their own electoral interest. So is this same Brazilian elite who recognize inequality and feel that it's an imperative to deal with it, which, again, we have the same problem here, not on quite the same scale, I understand, but are they also aware of the ravages of the, the Brazilian rainforest? I mean, one of the problems, I understand, is that the more the rest of the world is outraged, about it, uh, the more they, the right wing, dig in in Brazil and cut down more forests and kill more indigenous people. So when I speak of the economic elites, it's a large group of people with many different interests. Certainly the majority of agribusiness, which has supported Bolsonaro, and the truckers are linked to the agribusiness to a certain extent because they're doing a lot of moving of, of goods across the country to the uh, in, for the internal market or for export. Um, but there's another large sector of middle classes and even economic elite that do understand the seriousness of the global warming issue and environmental degradation. And so um, Lula had carried out a very successful program of slashing or eliminating or reducing deforestation He's made a very clear commitment also for defending and protecting indigenous lands against loggers and miners. And there is enough public awareness and concern about the Amazon, in addition to an awareness that the international community really cares about that, that I think Lula will uh, take momentum and bring along with him a minority of the economic elites that do understand this is serious problem. So I think he is going to be able to rebuild the government institutions that were destroyed by Bolsonaro, including the agency that monitors illegal logging and mining. He is going to establish for the first time in the history of Brazil a ministry uh, of indigenous affairs or for indigenous people, which he promises to appoint an indigenous person to lead. There will be a very strong reinforcing of social programs that affect people in the Amazon region, which is one of the reasons why some of the people who come into the area get involved in logging and other activities because it's more lucrative than very low wage labor. Um, and so even though agribusiness and other sectors that believe that the state should have a reduced influence in society and neoliberal argument for economic development, they are still powerful. Many of them will be supporting Bolsonaro adamantly and his party and his alliances. But there's another sector that understands that the environmental issues in the Amazon is the most important treasure that Brazil has, and they want to maintain it. So I am cautiously optimistic on this front that a coalition of environmentalists, indigenous movements, people living in the Amazon, and supporters of this movement will be able to work with the government to revert to former policies which were serious about protecting the environment. 
And I think just to conclude here, um, Lula has learned, I think, and especially when he had an international trip uh, earlier in the campaign before he actually officially ran for president, that in Europe, the environment is a very important issue. And if Brazil is to come back and become a global player again, something that Lula had done very successfully in all of his international traveling, that the environment will be a key issue. So if Brazil wants to have the prominence that it always aspires to have on the international scene, becoming a very important player in environmental protection will be essential. And I wouldn't be surprised if Lula doesn't go to the COP meeting in Egypt in November. But I don't, I don't have that information that, that's decided, but there's been a lot of talk about his leading a delegation there, along with his former minister of environment, Marina Silva, who had actually broken with the Workers' Party many years ago, but came back and was an important element of the electoral campaign. James Green, I thank you so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Anytime. And again, I've been speaking with James Green, who's in Brazil. He's the Carlos Manuel de Suspides Professor of Modern Latin American History and Portuguese and Brazilian Studies at Brown University and the author and co-editor of 11 books on Brazil and Latin America and the past president of the Brazilian Studies Association. And he's traveled extensively throughout Latin America and lived eight years in Brazil. And he joined us from Sao Paulo. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.